Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please now welcome Chuck Jones. Well, it's true. I, uh, being born in 1812, uh, <laughs> Lincoln was really a very nice man. I thought you were know. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, I was born in, in 1912, which is the uh, 100th anniversary of Charles Dickens' birthday. And I was born two years before Windsor McKay made Gertie the Dinosaur, and I like to believe that I had some effect on him because... <laughs> Upon that, I don't remember, but my mother contended that I that I made public nuisances of myself, and I'm still doing that. And you've just witnessed a group of the public nuisances I have created over the years. Uh, the essence of making uh, animation, however, is the recognition, which many people fail to recognize, that uh, animation is a teamwork, and and I want one thing I do know that I have in common. I have a talent that I have in common with other good people in our business, and that is that I knew enough to surround myself with talent. I always wanted animators better than I was when I was an animator. Men like Maurice Noble, who are a brilliant artist, uh, background men like Phil DeGarde, and, and writers like Ted Pearson and uh, Mike Maltese. Now, that, that's something I can recommend to anyone because if you surround yourself with talent, it doesn't matter which direction you fall, you're going to fall on somebody with talent. And that's very pleasant indeed. No one can take complete credit. The thing that the director has, though, he has the same responsibility that the captain of a ship has. I mean, everybody in the ship should be better running the ship than the, ca than the captain does, except the captain has to make the decisions. And at Warner Brothers, we were very fortunate in that we um, uh, we had terrible men we worked for. Uh, Leon Schlesinger and Eddie Selzer were two of the most abysmal human beings that uh, it could possibly get outside of outside of a decadent zoo. Uh, Leon, we had an advantage of Leon because Leon was a um, uh, he was lazy, and that, that's really what got, got us started doing good pictures because uh, he didn't know what we were working on. Uh, he did contribute one thing. I don't know if you realize this or not, but but um, he used to come back once in a while. He wore spats and always put gloves on before he came back into this place we, we, we worked in called Termite Terrace, which could have been called Spider Terrace or, dust or Spider Web you know, or Mouse Terrace or anything else. But there were, there were termites, all right, and he didn't want to get his pats dirty, so he'd tiptoe back there, and then he would ask us, what you working on, fellas? He had a little lisp, and, uh, and what you working on, fellas? And we, we knew he wouldn't be listening to us, so we'd, uh, one of us would say, well, we're working on a new Daffy Duck, and um, turns out the Daffy isn't a, isn't a duck at all. He's a transvestite chicken. <laughs> and, uh, and he'd say, uh, so Leon would say, uh, Oh boy, it's put in lots of jokes. Uh, I'm off to the Wraithers. And uh, so that's where Daffy Duck got his voice. 
Uh, Sex Avery was making a picture called Porky's Duck Hunt, I think it was, and, and uh, he hadn't wasn't happy with the voice that they were using on the duck at that time. Time, nor were we any of us happy with what Bugs Bunny's voice was like in the wild hair. So, uh, Cal Howard, who one of our writers said to Tex, he says, You know, Leon's voice would make a very good voice for that duck. And he feel he's, he's like uh, Leon because he said, Leon believes that the world owes him a living, and so does Daffy. <laughs> so, we figured well, that would make a perfect situation. So, Tex said, Well, fine, we'll do it. And so he, we uh, called Mel Blank in and says, uh, can you do Leon Slanger's voice? And uh, and Mel said, well, certainly I can do my <laughs> How much voice do you want me to do? And uh, he says, well, just for this picture. So we made it. And halfway through the picture, I was animating, and Bob Clampett and I were both animating, and Bob Cannon were all his animators. And uh, so he said... Uh, so we went ahead and put the picture to work and animated and so on. We got three quarters of the way through, and we realized that Leon was going to uh, was going to have to hear that picture. <laughs> and exactly how he would respond to his voice coming out of this idiot duck would. Well, we didn't have to ask the question. We knew full well what would happen. I mean, we would get fired, all of us. And um, and so the freight, but it was too late that we couldn't. You know, it was far too late. We couldn't uh, junk the picture. We hadn't any legitimate reason for doing so. So, so we uh, went ahead and finished it. And uh, so the day came, and in order to understand what this was like, I mean, Liam would enter from the fr- front of our little theater, and he'd walk back the middle. It was a middle aisle, and at the far end, he had a platform with an old golden throne on it that came from an early Warner Brothers silent picture where Theta Barra used to put her beautiful gams or butt and uh, they were called butt in those days not whatever they're called now I don't know but anyway they were beautiful then Leon would put his scaly old behind down on that and uh, and to make us feel good he'd say okay roll the garbage which uh, the first time he'd seen the film and, uh, of course, I said, you know, heart-rending. It made you feel good. And the guy really cares. And um, so we rolled the garbage. And uh, and Leon never paid any attention to what anybody was doing anyway. Uh, he, he didn't he didn't know whether people were laughing or not because he was so self, self-oriented. So uh, he listened to the picture all the way through. And, and nobody laughed because it was like being at a funeral, you know, because they were going to die. So we'd all written out our, our uh, resignation so we wouldn't get fired. And uh, so at the end of it, why uh, uh, he jumped up and he glared around. He says, Jesus Christ, that's a funny voice. Where'd you get that voice? (laughs) 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 So that's the way it all happened. Uh, And so Leon Schlesinger, who had a brain, well, let me explain about his brain. (laughs) I could never figure out where it belonged on the scale of animals. Uh, where his brain, you know, was it better than a possum? Uh, you know, so I didn't know. So I talked to a friend of mine over at UCLA, who was a, who was a um, zoologist, and so he said, and, and he was also a, generally a naturalist. He knew a lot of things. So he said, "Well, you know, uh, how do we find out?" He said, "Let's let's start." I said, "Look, what, in terms of living things, what's the lowest?" And he said, "Well." Um, well, that's sphagnum moss. It doesn't do anything. It just sits there. And I said, well, he does things. He irritates people. 
I wanted to make make him into poison oak, but he wouldn't have that. He said, no, let's go on up. We can do better. So we went up and we kept examining things. We finally got up to a thing that planarian worm, he said, that's a pretty good thing. It doesn't do very little. I mean, it does very little, but it, what it does, it, it's consistent. He said, I said, well, what, is there something about it that makes it different than others? And he said, well, it, it, it kind of bores its way up and seeks light. Said, well, Leon's lower than that. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't, he's not a planarian worm. So, so if you ever want to know the intellectual level of cartoon producers of that time, well, just get out your book and look somewhere between sphagnum moss and planarian worm. You'll find nestled there Eddie Selzer and Leon Schlesinger. <laughs> and, very happily in there and their stupidity. Uh, they live on stupidity. <laughs> With a little ketchup. Um, so a year ago last September, uh, the new management at Warner Brothers, who are very good people, uh, uh, I hate to say it because of my position is that producers are terrible people, but but I, in this case, I, I when I when I formed this new unit, I decided that I wanted a producer that I could trust, and the only one I knew I was certain I could trust who had had experience because we'd worked on Mrs. Doubtfire together uh, was my daughter, and so my, I made my daughter my producer, which hamstrung me terribly. Because I couldn't hate her. I'd loved her too long, you know. So when she doesn't ask, when she makes makes a judgment that I don't like, all I can do is go and sulk. And uh, and uh, what she used to do to me when she was little, so we're just getting it back. And uh, she's a good sulker, really. And um, they said, well, you, you we we want a 20-year contract. I was 82. And... Uh, and uh, you can only legally die every 10 years. Uh, that was even more appealing, you know. <laughs> so you, no, I'm not going to die illegally, that's for sure. And uh, so they, they put, me in, uh, put me in the office. They paid me a lot of money to make decent cartoons. We hope we made decent ones. But the point of the thing, and I want you to understand what this is all about, it wasn't a question of my coming back and making cartoons for them. I told them I would do so if I could rebuild and make what you might call uh, Termite Terrace 2. That is to build a studio uh, of young people, taking them from art school. We have a couple of people from England. We have some from Canada. We have a bunch of young local, local people, uh, men and women, a wonderful bunch, and they're developing into a new, a new unit. And so that's what I want. And I want. I told them within three years, what I wanted to do is build a unit of young people making new adventures with the old Warner Brother cartoons and new adventures with new characters because the new characters are where the vitality is. But the new adventures with the old characters is not a bad thing either. For them, it was kind of like, like you know, discovering that, uh, that Charlie Chaplin wasn't dead. It's, that's, they, that's the way they, they felt about it. So uh, we, we, made, we made this cartoon, which is now complete. We'll open the theater next week, so you guys are seeing it before anybody in the world has seen it. And uh, if you have opinions that are negative, keep them to yourself. Uh, anyway, the first cartoon is uh, is Fast and Furious, and uh, that was the very first one we made way back in '48, I think. Uh, Leon, uh, Leon or Eddie Selzer was now our producer, and he hated it because there was no dialogue. He's God damn it! He says we uh, we we pay Mel Blank, you know, and and and, and uh, he should use his voice. And I said, well, you know, we're not going to use any voices on this one. 
He says, what do you mean you're not going to use it? Okay, okay. Quiet down. And uh, so he sulked. I, mean, I told you I, I was familiar with sulking. And I didn't mind when he did it, you know. But he didn't want to do it because we, we didn't have the dialogue. And I said, well, it won't work otherwise. And he said, I don't got a damn whether it works or not. You can't got to use voices. We pay Mel blank. The curious part of it was that Mel didn't even do the beep beep. And Mike and I hadn't any idea what kind of a sound the roadrunner should make. And until uh, we were sitting in our room one day and, and uh, we heard this voice coming down the hall and it was going beep beep, beep beep, beep beep. And, it, and door was open and Paul Julian, one of the background men, walked by and he had a whole load of backgrounds in his arms and he couldn't see where he was going. So in order to keep him running into somebody, he went beep beep. And so he was, and so he went on. Actually, it probably is more like meep than I write it as beep beep, but but meep and in, in France they call it m i m i mimi. And uh, I guess French can't imagine anybody chasing anybody except for sexual reasons. And, <laughs> and but certainly would be bad if that's true. I'd hate to have the coyote catch the roadrunner. Uh, <laughs> and that would that would be a newly designed egg. I would think. Uh, the result would be too horrendous. So, at any rate, this voice went by, beep, 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 And I looked at Mike, and Mike looked at me, and I said, well, you're the Catholic around here. So he said, okay, God, we'll take it from here. And that's where the beep, beep came from. And so it's always been his. We use it over and over again. Even Mel did not do that, that beep, beep. Anyway, there's not much to say about the thing, except it was an experiment. And uh, when I came back, I wanted to do it, and I thought maybe I'd give the person a little bit of uh, personality to the roadrunner, and uh, that he would be more uh, maybe get a little a little Harpo Marxish look to him. Not not he would do it maliciously. He's never malicious. You'll also notice, however, that in the first one, he actually does a couple of things which are not pleasant for the for the coyote. I realized afterward, absolutely no. The reason for that being, and I'll, I'll be profound for a moment, but comedy, comedy as different than tragedy, is always involved with little things, little reasons for doing things. Uh, and this is terribly profound. I didn't know at the time, at the time, but if you go clear back to Chaplin or Buster Keaton or uh, clear up to Woody Allen when he was, when he was not being Ingmar Bergman, uh, great, great, great comedian, that they're always dealing with little things. I mean, getting something to eat, some place to stay, some place to get away from the cops, chasing, whatever. But there are always tiny things, things we do, things we are involved with. So when the coyote was chasing the roadrunner, why, uh, I always thought the roadrunner, I could, they could kind of translate that over to some people I know who are terribly fond of caviar. You know, they pass up a lot of things that I enjoy very much, like hot dogs and hamburgers, you know, I really love them. And, uh, and they'll go right for this much caviar. And they die for an ounce of caviar, even though it costs $89. Well, I figured that's what, that's what the, the roadrunner is to the coyote. Very fast caviar. And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, though, though it's only in retrospect and looking back. So we'll run these two cartoons, and if you'd like to discuss them in a friendly way. Uh, <laughs> you know, in a very, uh, boy, that's wonderful way. Uh, but uh, but any sulking on your part uh, will empty this auditorium. <laughs> I have a deal. <laughs> so let's do that. 
Well, I'm glad that you uh, had a chance to see this. The contrast, there isn't much contrast. <laughs> the characters do develop, and you notice there's quite a bit of difference in the, in the way the character looks. But the, but the point about it all is, and about all acting, I think, it can be said that uh, the characters are the way they move, not what they look like. In a comic strip, you only have one choice, and, and that is you've got to have a drawing style, which is established when you open the newspaper, you look down, I can immediately see that's Charlie Brown, that's, and that's Mike Peters, and these people are very favorite people of mine, but they actually are, are uh, they only have those tools to work with. Now, if you're dealing with Bugs Bunny or or Donald Duck, or Daffy Duck, or any of the others, uh, it's the way they move that make them what they are. If you've never seen Bugs Bunny in movement, I doubt very much all those cells would sell for this disgraceful amount of money. Uh, but I can't help that. I mean, I don't get it. So, uh, so I, I, I think it would be perfectly, it would be a great bargain if I got the money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I don't, so uh, I figure I'm with you guys. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so Warner Brothers gets richer and I get more resentful. <laughs> Not true, really. Uh, we never, uh, we all worked for Warner Brothers. We developed the characters, we invented the characters, and we were paid a reasonable amount to, to animate and draw and direct. And although we would have all loved to have participated in the goodies, we had something that none of them could ever have, and that is that we drew them. We thought them up, we drew them, we brought them to life. And the life was that the character is what it, the way it moves is what makes it what it is. Now you can tell any time, people ask what's the difference between limited animation and full, full animation. There's nothing mysterious about it. All you have to do is turn the picture on, perhaps on Saturday morning, or any other time, it doesn't matter what it is, and turn the sound off. If you can tell what's happening, you're looking at animation. As defined by a man named Noah Webster, probably uh, in 1840. Under it says, animation. After that it says, to invoke life. And it was to bring something to life, bring it you know, say, into believable life. And, and uh, if, as you can with our pictures and with Disney, you can tell what's happening without the sound. It's like, like in watching a good actor like Alec Guinness or Olivier or like that, you can turn the sound off and you can tell pretty much what's going on. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I use that method in, on airplanes. I, I don't know if I like the picture or not, so I just turn it on without the earphones. And if the picture interests me without the, the talk, why I figure it must be doing it must be a good picture. Then I'll, then I'll start listening. And uh, it's, it's not a bad, a bad way of, of, uh, of getting started because most of that stuff is pretty dumb. Anyway, I'm trying to, to define for you what full animation is. And curiously enough, it started there in that one place in Hollywood, in Burbank, California, which is not notable for anything else. As a matter of fact, Bur Burbank is not even named after Luther Burbank. Uh, who is quite famous, as you know, uh, man in the vegetable line. Uh, but it turned out that it wasn't named after him, although he did work there 
It was named after a man. You can't believe this. This sounds like something out of a Harpo Max. It was a man named Sam Burbank. And he was a dentist. And he was, <laughs> and that's what the town's named after. <laughs> so everybody goes, in this. It's like this coming. We made a cartoon once in which Bugs thought he was up against against uh, William Shakespeare, and all the way through he was you know, talking in Shakespearean terms. And at the end of the, uh, one of his, turned out the guy's name was was Giuseppe Shakespeare, <laughs> you know, a long distant relative, and <laughs> kind of disappointing. So, so what we did was twenty-four drawings a second, usually twelve, sometimes twelve drawings a second, and made four or five thousand drawings to make a six-minute cartoon. And the characters acted, hopefully, and hopefully they were became endearing to us. I know by by the way they moved. And I think we had about eighty characters, one way or another, over the, a long period of time. And uh, so that's exactly what we're going back to doing. We're not going to do that because it's, sad, it's very sad if you if you're looking while you're looking if you come across something even. And I, I know uh, Mac Agronik uh, is a good friend of mine and a very nice guy, and he loves our stuff. But nevertheless, you turn this, try turning the sound off and see if you can figure out what's happening on the Simpsons. Well, you can't. That's nothing against it any more than you could on on on, on Bullwinkle, you know. And those are wonderful. But curiously enough, and oddly enough, one of the men that worked at and was most responsible for Bullwinkle and Rocky was an am, um, a man who came to us after the war, Bill Scott. <coughs> a wonderful story. He wrote to his grandmother in Denver and told her how proud he was. He said, I'm writing scripts for Bugs Bunny. And she, the old lady was kind of, I was going to say, pissed, you know, <laughs> uh, about his effrontery. And she wrote back and said, I can't understand why you're writing scripts for Bugs Bunny. He's funny enough just the way he is. <laughs> Which is exactly what we were trying to do, you know, was to bring the character to life, but not ostensibly, not to say that he's acting. How, how much of acting in, is reacting? In your films, a lot of the comedy comes from reactions, from those like silent, pregnant moments when the character realizes something bad is about to happen. Um, your films are filled with these, like, just kind of quiet moments when the, the character, whether it's Bugs or Daffy or Roadrunner or Coyote, is reacting. Would you explain the word pregnant? <laughs> Ripe with comic tension, <laughs> in this case. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think my wife would have thought that was a very good interpretation. She didn't like carrying that thing around. Anyway, yeah, um, humor is pretty much uh, depends upon response, doesn't it? Jackie Gleason probably described the situation about as well as it could be explained in terms of comedy. He said, he said uh, comedy is the most exacting of all the uh, of all forms of drama because you have an instant critic laughter. And that's pretty good, isn't it? Because if you're doing tragedy, what do you do? Come down and check out the number of tears that come out. Pick them up, you know, and take them back and measure them and Thinks you've got two quarts tonight. <laughs> so there's no way of telling, is there? But I'll tell you one thing. And speaking, 
mapping of that kind of thing. Uh, those very often these these tests, you know, they always making tests, which we didn't. We just went ahead, went ahead and made pictures we thought were funny. Uh, but when Snow White and the Seven Dwarves came out, why there was a lot of criticism of the of the witches, you know, and they had they have tests. They're bringing these horrible little children, you know, uh, little kids like so and and uh, run the picture for them, you know, to find out, you know, what they do. You know, they had they had uh, paddy wagons to carry them away. You know. When they went mad with fear, well, they didn't go mad with fear, but uh, apparently somewhere along the line there was evidence, and you know, this is you know, very scientific. There was evidence that they had wet their pants, <laughs> and everybody said, "See, ha ha!" That's it. When that witch showed up, boy, boy, that's where that you know, those kids started started wetting their trousers and stuff. And no wonder, by God, this would be taken out of circulation. So. When we made pictures, all we knew was this. We were to make pictures, uh, the job was to make pictures that would make people laugh. In theaters, all of our films were made for theaters. We never made anything for television, except later when I made specials like The Grinch and so on. Um, we made them for, um, uh, for an audience. Well, we didn't know where the audience was. And uh, we never made pictures for children, because we were certain that... If, that that people that went to see I Was a Fugitive from a Chain Gang or Public Enemy or something like that, where our pictures were playing with those features, that obviously the audience was not most solely of toddlers, as they're so quaintly called. Uh, no, um, they were, and, and we were, we were quite young. We were like a great many of you are young too. We were in our, I was 18 when I started in, in animation, and. and uh, we were all in our twenties. The old man was the old man in our business was uh, was Walt Disney, and he was like twenty nine. And uh, so we, we we suddenly looked around and realized to hell with theory. We didn't actually do it at a specific time, but subconsciously we suddenly realized we were surrounded by cartoonists that we admired. Was, I mean, Frizz Freeling and. And uh, Mike Maltese and Ted Pearson, all the rest of these guys, and and we suddenly, well, why should we depend upon? And these guys are good. Let's learn from each other, and that's what we did. I don't think we ever voiced it, but that's the way it turned out. We learned from one another, and uh, we felt that if what we all agreed was funny, then hopefully an audience would follow, and if the audience didn't follow, then they were obviously doing something wrong, and we'd be on the street. As in those good days, they used to call it sucking bricks. Uh, <laughs> a terrible term, but it was very accurate. Very I wanted to talk about uh, one of the, the stars of today's program is Bugs Bunny. And could you talk about how Bugs evolved and came to life? Because he had um, several fathers, several directors. Yeah, well, Bugs, Bugs was an unusual rabbit. And the most rabbits have hundreds of children. And Bugs had, uh, well, essentially, I think three fathers. Uh, Tex Avery and uh, Perez Freeling and me, I guess. I guess I can mosey in on that group. <laughs> and uh, and Clampett was in there too, but Clampett tended to make Bugs a lot wilder uh, and, and funny, but in a different way. Uh, and even Tex's first rabbit, uh, in which What's Up Doc was put in, uh, the reason people say, where did that come from? You know, a magical phrase. Well, it really wasn't a magical phrase, and it's not a funny line in itself. Uh, at the 
when Bugs Bunny said it, it became funny because of the situation, right? I like to translate that situation into, into uh, a term most of us can understand, and, uh, including me. But if you came up to your house and you had a gate, and you open the gate and you walk up to the front door, and there's somebody, a total stranger, with your front door open, firing a shotgun into your living room. If you have any brains, of course, you'll run for the hills, but not bugs. He looks over the shoulder to see you. That's the point. And he says, well, you know, it takes a couple of minutes, he says, what's up, Doc? And, uh, and, and, and that's, well, what a dumb thing to do. <laughs> this guy's got a gun. <laughs> and of course, guns were not as popular among the, the friendly folk of the street as they were in those days. Uh, not in those days, they weren't, as they are today, rather. So, uh, but, but, but in other words, the line becomes important and valuable within a context. That's true of all great lines. I don't know whether all of you remember Jack Benny's wonderful lines where he would pull his arms and look around and say, Well, and if you imagine writing uh, a script for that, saying, Benny, Jack Benny says, Well, hold for two minutes of laughter. <laughs> Well, that, that's the writers kill themselves when they run against. It would only, this only works in radio, of course. Well, Jack Benny uh, is on, on his way home, walking along the street, and you hear the step, his steps going along the street, and and then you hear somebody another set of, of footsteps coming. Boom, 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 and this voice says, "Your money or your life." Now, Benny is a miser. And that hesitate, that long hesitate. And it went on for about a minute before the audience began to understand. And then the guy says, Don't, didn't you hear me? I said, Your money or your life. Benny says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> it's, so, it's so peculiar, it's so way out, you know, but it works. And, and, and a very subtle thing. And then, and then like, you remember, you, everybody loves that line of Davy. But if, if anybody had ever told me I, I would write a line saying and get, and get a laugh out of pronoun trouble, <laughs> absurd. <laughs> Even when I put it in there, I didn't know it was going to be a laugh. I thought it was funny, but I didn't think it seemed to be a kind of a quirky little thing, you know? Um, the first film we saw on this program today was Do uh, The Dover Boys, which seemed hmm. to be an important stylistic um, turning point for you. So could you talk about how that cartoon came about and what was different about it? Well, we have to go back a long way <laughs> in, in, in order to understand what the Dover Boys meant because uh, I learned to read when I was very young because my father uh, didn't like to read to his children. So he taught us all to read when we were like three. There were four of us, so he had to teach each one of us. But he said he didn't want to waste his time reading to us. He said, if you can learn to stand up, that's more complicated than learning how to read. So we all did learn to read, so we all started reading. And uh, so we read a, a lot of things, of course. And, uh, and uh, I, I'd heard there were bad things to read, like Horatio Alger and the, and the Bobsy Twins and that kind of thing. Father said, how are you ever going to know what good reading is unless you read bad stuff? Read anything, you'll soon it'll soon separate. Probably said one of the good ways to descend. He'll determine it. He said bad writing is always sweet, and good writing is always tart. 
a sharpness to it. And you'll discover that. You'll set your own rules. And you'll discard the stuff that's no good. But among the things that we read were the, were the Rover Boys, which probably most of you have never even heard of, but they were the, they were the Rover Boys, the Rover Boys across the plains, the Rover Boys. But, but then Dan Baxter came into it, and the place they went to school was Putnam Hall. And uh, whenever, they, whenever in the book they talked about, about, Baxter, about Dan, Dan Baxter, uh, they called him, uh, they'd say, Dan Baxter, coward, bully, cat, and thief, and arch enemy of the Rover Boys. Not once. Every time he showed up. <laughs> he'd walk into the room. He'd say, Dan Baxter walked into the room. Dan Baxter, coward, bully, cat, and thief, and arch enemy of the, of the Rover Boys, you know. So we put that in the film. We, we called him Dan Backslide. And, uh, and we had the, the, the three boys, uh, we had the three boys that were, uh, um, they were all engaged to the same woman, uh, <laughs> Dora. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that was just a takeoff. They hated the picture in, in New York. They never, they hated anything they'd ever seen before. That's true to a certain extent of television. You can see some guy gets real daring and goes out and does something, uh, you know, and everybody else imitates them. But uh, they're all afraid to do something new. That, you know, might rub off or something. They might be called call attention to it. Anyway, that was true of films in those in those days, and nobody ever seen anything like the Dover Boys. They had never seen anything like Bugs Bunny either. The first Bugs Bunny was spat upon. The first Roadrunner. I, if you look at the at the uh, at the listing, you'll notice that the uh, I made a Roadrunner picture. Then it was three years before the next one came out. Why? Because they demanded they wait and see whether anybody liked it or not. And the way they liked it, the way at first I discovered it, it was an interesting thing happened. There were, uh, this was right after the war, 48, not exactly right after, but soon enough. And I got a letter from a, a, uh, a psychiatrist who was in the, uh, he was actually a Marine assigned to the uh, Pensacola Naval Base and uh, for studying uh, uh, pilot behavior in the air and so on. Uh, anyway, he, he wrote to me and he said that they'd had a peculiar phenomenon. <laughs> I didn't know. I'd heard nothing about the picture since it left. And he called and he said they were listening into some uh, guys who were making practice runs. They were torpedo bombers. They were making some practice runs on an old destroyer out off Pensacola. And he said he heard the, the, the lead pilot say, uh, uh, Red Fox to Red Fox group, um, we're going in for the kill. And he went, beep, beep, and he went, boop, and he went, beep, 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 beep. These guys went after him, and he said, they, we figured they'd all gone Section 8, which means we have to shoot them out of the sky. He said, what the hell's the matter with the guys? So when they came down, why they, it turned out the night before, they'd run that first cartoon, the one you just saw. And they were enchanted by it, and uh, so they demanded that it be run again the next night. So everybody in the base came in, and... Uh, I think it was about 8,000 people came into this huge issue. They had to run it like eight times. And then this one man and woman, all of the people on the base got up and walked out on a Doris Day feature, which we thought was kind of nice, you know. It proved these people had good taste. <laughs> so that was the first thing I knew. And, uh, and uh, so we, I told the producer about it, and he said, oh, he says, that, well, come on, that couldn't happen again. Uh, they're a specialized audience. Anyway, so we did go back and make more of them, and I made about 26 of them all told, and I never ran out of material. 
got to the point where I could write it off. I could write them quite quickly, almost as fast as I could write. You see, the process of animating, because you make so many drawings, uh, you don't have to figure out how to draw the character each time. It's like an actor, you have to figure out what he is doing. I can draw Bugs Bunny, and, and, but the, then I have to think, what would Bugs Bunny doing if he, if he met a polar bear? So he's, he'd, act, he'd act differently under different situations. And the same character will act differently under all different situations. The different characters will act differently under the same situation. So if Bugs Bunny uh, meets Elmer Fudd with a gun, he'll act one way. If Daffy meets him, he will act in a different way. I, uh, I met uh, Marcel Marceau, and, and he said that he learned a lot of his, his thing from watching, uh, watching Buster Keaton. You see, Buster Keaton was a great comedian, but he couldn't move his face. The part of his deal was that frozen face. So a lot of his work was done with his feet, back and forth like this. And when he wasn't sure, he'd go forward. If he was unsure, he'd go back. And if he was undecided, he'd go sideways. So uh, he said, I learned a lot from that. And then uh, who was the one that played Mr. Hugo's Holiday? Jacques Tati. Jacques Tati. So he did the same thing. And he said, the only thing I added was him tipping his hat. So, <laughs> so it, it depends. You have to work out the limitations of your character, too, as to what he will do. And you have to learn uh, what they call displacement activities, which means the, character, the things that you do that don't mean anything, like rubbing your nose or pulling your ear or anything like that. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, but it's essential to know whether the character will, not just pointing or this kind of thing. You, uh, it's a tricky thing, but, but it's so much fun. It took us, our group, five weeks to animate uh, a cartoon. We had 10 pictures in works at the same time, and each picture had around 5,000 drawings. So uh, it would take five weeks for story, for a six-minute cartoon, five weeks to lay the picture out, which is my job of doing three to 400 drawings. Uh, then the, uh, maybe five animators would take five weeks. It's the same today as it was then at, at uh, a good animator with a top-notch assistant, maybe two top-notch assistants, can do what amounts to 15 seconds of screen time a week. It's 15 seconds. Now, Disney, that you can boil that down. It may be six seconds a week for a good Disney animator. Well, you wonder, you know, someone once described animation as embroidering, I mean, carving the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin on an assembly line basis. <laughs> And when you think about it, that is it. It's not, it doesn't seem like very much, does it? And yet, so that's why it takes so many animators to do it. It's true to, it's true today as it was then. Now, eventually the question will come up, what about, what about computers? And uh, we're covering, we have to cover a lot of ground here in a very short time. Today the computer is a valuable assistant. It has nothing to do with creativity and says such. Because the computer basically will do for you uh, what they call what in, uh, in, in England they call donkey work. That is work that, that doesn't require much creativity. A lot of ladies used to do the donkey work in houses, maids and so on. Uh, but, and the donkey work would be, for instance, when we did 101 Dalmatians, I don't know whether you knew that, uh, that they actually only animated about eight different dogs. 
and then they put them in the computer. They were, or it was early use of computers, but they were able to put, the, put them into computers and then the computer would multiply the number. Uh, but however, the animators animated white dogs and then an assistant would come along and put the spots on them. Now there's a job to conjure with. <laughs> because each dog had a different kind, a different, a different pattern. So, but can you imagine spending all your day putting spots on Dalmatians <laughs> and meeting with a friend at a cocktail party and he said, what have you been doing today? I'm going to put spots on, on Dalmatians. <laughs> well, in, in Lion King, when they had that great stampede of animals where they built a beast or whatever they were, mm -hmm. uh, Rob Minkoff, who was, who was a student of mine at Caltech, or Cal Arts, rather, he was, I was just visiting, as a, as a lecturer, he directed it. And uh, he told me how they did that. And I think they animated 20 different animals uh, and, uh, and 20 different kinds of runs. Then they put it into the computer and instructed the, com the computer to be sure that they wouldn't run into each other <laughs> or, or pass through each other and so on. It's an incredible tool. In fact, the hardest thing that an animator has is what we call <coughs> Secondary action. Secondary action is something which is not generated uh, by, for instance, a horse uh, would be a primary action a human being walking would. But, the, but I'm, uh, the coat I'm wearing, when I stop, the coat will go a little further and then come back. That's called secondary action, and it's very important. And uh, you may notice, I know that when my daughter was a little girl, she uh, she was talking about. Terry tunes, and I said, well, how do you guys like Terry tunes? And she says, well, we don't like it because whenever there's a splash, the water disappears. <laughs> it wasn't believable, right? And so we, after that, I was very careful by going, the bugs full of water, the water didn't, the, the drops did not disappear, they went someplace. <laughs> so you can't, you can't fool all the children all of the time, and you shouldn't fool any of the children any of the time. I like to say that, that you, I do not believe, I believe that you owe what, your very best for any audience. You have no right to be doing it if you can't do the best that you can. The, uh, if you're faced with limitations, that's fine. Those are disciplines and you must live within them. Uh, but it's surprising what you can do with very simple tools. Uh, in, in live action, if you only have two actors, don't try the Peloponnesian Wars. Do the four poster, which you can do with two two actors. So I think that's one of the one of the rules that you should do. I mean, I, for instance, they did 101 Dalmatian. If I had made one dog named Spot, they wouldn't let me do it. Animating a white dog with one spot. <laughs> so uh, those are my, my our limitations. Now let me tell you another thing about Water Brothers cartoons, which uh, may be of use, not because you're going to do it, but because it was different in this respect. Uh, all the other uh, wealthy studios like MGM and, and Disney could overshoot scenes. And sometimes they would shoot a whole scene and then take it out of the picture completely. But, but at Warner Brothers, when Leon Schlesinger was our producer, our first producer, uh, they used to make pictures that were like seven or eight minutes long because, uh, because everybody was paid so little, it really didn't make much difference. <clears throat> but after a while, uh, people got more expensive simply because cartoons became more desirable. Wages went up by a matter of demand. 
And Leon Schlesinger, whose brain was not really admirable in any way, <laughs> still could add <laughs> up, up to a point. <laughs> but he did realize that, that if he made the picture shorter, they wouldn't cost as much. <laughs> a brilliant move on the concept. It almost broke his brow, but he, <laughs> but he managed it. And uh, so he started demanding that we make them shorter and shorter. He finally came down to six minutes. And at that point, he ran into a force he could not, he could not, uh, he couldn't conquer. And that was the exhibitor. The exhibitor said, we want six-minute cartoons because we make a two-hour program composed of a feature, a short subject, a, a cartoon, a newsreel, and what they called coming attraction to build out to a two-hour program. We can have them longer than that. We can't have them any shorter. And so Leon said, therefore, if they're going to be six minutes, they're going to be exactly six minutes, buddy. And so there we were. So we learned, we learned something that no other studio really ever did learn, uh, with few exceptions, and that was the director had to time every picture exactly to 540 feet, which is six minutes. We might slop over by a half a second, uh, but you had to learn to time it to that length. We, we couldn't make them shorter for the, because the exhibitor didn't want them short. We couldn't make them longer because Leon Schlesinger wouldn't let us. Well, the result was that we learned to time, so that these pictures, there's no editing. The editing was all done in the director's head. The timing was all done on bar sheets or on what we call exposure sheets. So that every bit of timing in there, you had to learn it. Some of my early pictures are very sloppy and slow while I was learning the trade. But this, these cartoons you've seen here were laid out at exactly that length. They weren't any longer, they were not edited. So when you use the term editor, on the, on the credits, it, that was the man who cut the sound effects. That was Trey Brown, but he did not edit the picture. He merely spliced it. It was done when he got it. And uh, I, I just took it for granted that's the way he made a living. But I found out later that I was too sorely put, up, put upon. It's terrible to be put upon and not know it. <laughs> but on a Coyote and Roadrunner, you have to rem figure out how to make, how far should he fall? Like. I had him falling off, and it was always 18 frames falling off into the distance. Then he disappeared for 12 frames, half a second, and then you heard that pop. <laughs> you may believe it. I do not believe that it would have been funny if it had been 14 frames. 14 frames, half a second. But you must get to think that way. In the mid-50s, when Warner Brothers, for a brief period, fired um, a lot of the animators, and how were you able to keep the people you were working with? Well, I didn't keep them. I had to get them back. I kept them back, yeah. Uh, but, but let me preface that by saying the reason for that was that the reason that everybody was let off at that time, I wasn't. I quit because I was under contract, as with Frizz was. But there wasn't any point in my, uh, so I, I uh, staying there, everybody else was out. And, uh, but first of all, that was the time when, they, when, uh, when, when Jack Warner made uh, House of Wax. Uh, three-dimensional, when he figured animated cartoons couldn't be made in three-dimensional, and they can't really, not, not, because they start out flat. <laughs> so you can't make something round that is flat. The drawer. Well, but I, I have to let you in on something, that give, you, give you some idea of the depth of wisdom that Jack Warner had. Um, making a picture in three-dimensional, right? 
So he looked around among his cadre of directors and picked out a man named Andre de Toth to direct the picture. And Andre de Toth was interesting because he only had one eye. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Warner, but you know, there's a man with he was the head of a company with that. We're brilliant. And he had to look hard to get Andrew to go. <laughs> he shot the first three-dimensional picture. He never saw it. <laughs> Putting on those glasses didn't help him any because it all looked red to him because he's green eyed as well. <laughs> oh, it was a rich time. And uh, so Leon shut down the studio and everybody went to packing and, and you know it was funny, kind of cute too because he called all the people in and said I want you to all go out and get jobs. Sure, by all means, it's easy work. So I went over to Disney Studio. It was, it was a very traumatic experience for Walt. And, uh, <laughs> I was there for a short time. And, uh, um, but coming back, you're quite right. When then we, uh, the, the House of Wax did well, but they made another one that wasn't any good. And so he, he realized that he had to get the people back again. So what he had to do was pay them more. And we insisted that they get the, the, the good people back and they wouldn't get the, the kind of pictures that he was making. Mo most of them had gone to companies that at that time were making, uh, were making some uh, uh, medical pictures and that kind of thing. A few of them had gone to Disney's, but it wasn't a good thing to go to Disney. Disney was set at the very top all the way down. And uh, so that's exactly what happened. He had to pay more money. And it was a very good thing for everybody. It actually made the union possible. Which, because if things got bad, so bad at one time, they were, uh, throughout the industry, they were paying girls uh, to ink and paint. And today, men and women both ink and paint, in the same sense that men and women both animate. But they were paying them as low as $6 a week. Which at that time, you, well, you couldn't live on it, but, but you could at least eat enough to know you were starving. <laughs> okay, what was the working process for making chariots of fur, whether the computer was used or the old fashioned? Well, because I liked to preserve the line, I, I, I didn't like to do away with inkers because they were not nice people, but and, and unless you were doing really beautiful artistic thinking the way they did in um, Fantasia, you really didn't need it. So when it was eight, you were able to Xerox the original drawing right onto the cell. Then, the, then our stuff is still hand-painted. But, but the drawings are the original drawings of the animator and cleanup man. Uh, Xeroxed onto the cell, they turn them over and paint them. Okay, we want your opinion about Warner Brothers' current television output. Well, let me put it this way. <laughs> if, if my sister was a moron, would I admit it? <laughs> Okay, how did, Mel, how did Mel Blanc's career get started and how did that work? Mel Blanc uh, started as a, as a radio uh, night radio man, which you could, if you worked hard, you could get to do it for nothing. They, 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 there was nobody named Rush Limbaugh or anything like that or Howard Stern or so on. They were, just, they were guys who would put a record on, they'd talk about local stuff, and they'd, they'd just discuss anything that came to their mind. Those early days, like in, when they first had radio, they had a outfit called the Mercury Theater, which, which is where so many of the, uh, the great people that we know, Orson Welles and people like that, came out of. And when they started up, they were so delighted with this thing they had that they would, uh, 
I say, I tell you, you know, they say, what do we do today? Because why don't we read the Declaration of Independence? It wouldn't be a bad idea. So they did read it, and uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea if somebody read it today, would it? <laughs> uh, so Mel Blank then came down here to uh, Southern California. He thought he could come down here. He'd done a lot of voice, uh, various kinds of voices, and, uh, you know, imitating animals and that kind of thing. And so he came down to Los Angeles, and he came... And he heard that Warner Brothers were doing uh, characters, and so he came up and he said, and uh, talked to uh, one of the men who was hiring, he said, you know, I do a lot of voices, would you listen to me? And the guy says, no, nah, come on, we have all the voices we need, which was not true, because they were all bad. Uh, I was animated that time, I wasn't directing, so. So, um, in fact, I animated for both Fritz Freeling and Tex Avery early, which is, which, and they survived. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, then they, uh, uh, so he said he went a couple of years when he did a few little spots for television and for radio. And then finally, uh, the guy died that was doing some of our voices and <laughs> held a way to get in. Uh, but worthwhile. I didn't say whether the male killed him or not, but they, uh, <laughs> that's bad. It's one of those secrets of Hollywood you do. <laughs> and anyway, so, uh, so then uh, Frizz was making a picture called I Haven't Got a Hat. And uh, it was a little 1937, and he had a little the pig there, and uh, who stuttered. The reason it was a gag, really, because it was like a graduation a ceremony from kindergarten, and the little characters got up and did little things, you know, and they recited things. And so this little pig got up to recite, and he was supposed to recite the uh, Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. The little pig started to 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 recite it, and obviously he knew it, but he went, listen, I told you children, you shall hear the meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-meh-me
and where we used the, the Blue Danube, you know, when that spring went off. And that was done right to the music, did you notice that? Mm -hmm. So everything that happened there was right to the music. I lay out all my pictures in musical terms, even if it is a musical. And if, when, when we're actually doing a musical, such as What's Opera Doc, or The uh, Rabbit of Seville, why, uh, the, the, we play the music straight. We do not fool around with the music. Uh, the, we figure what's happening in front of it is what makes, hopefully we'll make it funny. In the case of the Roadrunner and Coyote, of course, the, the music is, we, it's all Spike Jones kind of stuff. Although many of you probably don't recognize it, I didn't for years myself, that one of the basic themes, that, that kind of fast theme that he uses in there is actually a, a theme from Smetna's The Bartered Bride. And I always wanted to call it The Battered Bird. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we, the, the director still does it, yeah. Will the Curiosity Shop ever come on tape? I believe it does, but but I'm making a new <laughs> but I'm making a new frog. It's going to be yeah, it's going to be another froggy evening, and it's, uh, it really starts with uh, uh, Neanderthal or actually Cro-Magnon times of a Cro-Magnon guy chasing a, a, a prehistoric chicken, and the chicken dives under a rock. He reaches under the rock and pulls out that can with him. Flies open and the frog comes out saying, Sell my baby. <laughs> so we following, following through history. He, he the next ends up in Rome and then he ends up in in the in, in the Spanish court and and Paul Revere's ride and managed to mess everything up and finally disappears into the Imperium I mean, he, he disappears into the outer space. Is that coming? He'll be out this year, coming here, yeah. And they're using the frog. The frog will be uh, the, the new Warner Brother Network. He, he's, he's, the, he's the figurehead. So you'll see him. I never, I, I never understood him. I, he, he was a very strange critter to me. I, once I had him, I couldn't get rid of him, but he was, but that problem <laughs> his. But, but and let, let me tell you something about that, because there are really two, in, in full animation, there are kind of two basic forms. Uh, one of them is what, for uh, want of a better word, you might call, uh, well, I, when I did Ricky Tiki Tavi and when Disney did Bambi, uh, no, and the 101 Dalmatians, those things, right? But uh, the, the, where the creature moves like the real creature. Bambi, all the characters, same thing with the Lion King. They move pretty much like the real animal moves. The only thing is they can talk to each other. Curiously enough, all the animals understand each other. It seems kind of odd that a snail can talk to a lion, I suppose. But anyway, and then you have what you might call the humanized characters, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Donald Duck, Mickey, and so on. Characters who do not move like mice and ducks and so on, but are kind of move like an animal. In the ancient tradition of La Fontaine and Aesop and Kipling and so on. Anyway, not like Kipling, no. And Kipling falls into the other one. Well, now, with the frog, we had this problem, that the man is a regular guy. He's doing something, in this case, demolishing a building, right? And then he discovers this frog. Well, he had to be believable as a frog. Or it would not be surprising if he, uh, if he was like Bugs Bunny. If he started dancing, you'd take that for granted. But a dumb frog. So I had him, when they pick him up, you know, he's all slippery. And he has a, he's this one little mound body. And, you know, he's, he, frogs don't have 
And we have, they, they don't have necks. Uh, John L. Lewis one time describing William Green says, Green doesn't have a head. He said he's, his neck just grew up and haired over. <laughs> and of course the frog doesn't have hair, but, but he doesn't have a neck either. And when you pick a frog up, if you're a boy, I don't know how many girls picked up frogs, uh, you pick it up and the legs just hang down and dangle. So what I had to have was a frog who was believable as a real frog. So when he jumped up and started singing, he would be astonishing to everybody. <laughs> the question is about the, your, um, your impressions of the, the new animators. Do they differ from... No, I, my opinion of them? Well, as I told you, uh, uh, Rob Minkoff, one of the directors of, of The Lion King, was a friend of mine. And I think he's an excellent animator. But he, he's, he's been working in animation for 10 years. Yeah, I think that these guys are excellent animators. And, uh, and it, what, I, but, but what I want is something different. I want the spirit of the way the characters were, the way we designed them. And uh, there's a, I don't think I could animate a Disney as a character is too, generally too nice. <laughs> <laughs> Bugs Bunny is really the only really nice character we have. I mean, Pepe Le Pew, yes, but, but Bugs Bunny is a, uh, is, always has to be provoked. That's, you know, all comedy has, has limitations. All comedy, <laughs> must be brought in tight. Uh, Bugs Bunny's is that you must, he must never do anything unless he's provoked. And as I say, in the very first picture he was crazy. And we realized it's much more fun for him to play like he's crazy than to be crazy. Nobody understands craziness. So, but with Bugs Bunny, you have to have him minding his own business in every picture. And somebody comes along and, and disturbs his equanimity. So at that point, he's very much like Professor Higgins in My Fair Lady, and then somebody tries to disturb him and he arises to the occasion and fights back. But Daffy, you don't have to Daffy, do that. I mean, Daffy is... Daffy, I said, is Leon Schlesinger. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Leon Schlesinger used to say, I don't have to be nice with people going up because I'm not coming back down. <laughs> well, I can understand. That's natural, isn't it? I mean... When I did How the Grinch Stole Christmas, I realized that, boy, I had one there I could understand. <laughs> Everybody hates Christmas a little bit. It's a terrible thing to say at this time of the year. But maybe you don't hate Christmas leading up to it. But if you're a kid, you're going to hate it when they say you answer those letters. You've got to thank you, all your aunts and uncles and your, for that jackknife or whatever they gave you. Something to hurt yourself with. You know. <laughs> Like, like, like those skates they get from, from the Acme Corporation. <laughs> Mr. Jones, first of all, I want to tell you the greatest thing that happened to, to cartoons and animation. And uh, I, I'm just wondering, to all of the, the young people of today that want to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? And is there any direction that you would recommend yes. of, of schooling or, or things of that nature? Uh, do you want to repeat it so they can I repeat it? it. I, I think you heard that you're the greatest animator ever from him. <laughs> but I want to remind you. that? I, I said that. <laughs> I'm supposed to shout that. <laughs> you're supposed to write it down. It's <laughs> okay. Um, in addition to you, again, to repeat, being the greatest animator, um, what advice would you have to uh, young people who want to get into the field today? Well, they could very well do what I did, and I didn't do it on purpose. Now you can do it on purpose. First of all, uh, there were no schools of animation. 
right? When I was in the 1920s. So I, uh, I got so disgusted with high school, and my father realized I was bored to death because I'd read every book they gave me before I was a freshman. And so I managed to get through to my junior year, and then he pulled me out and sent me to, I was a dropout. And I dropped into, into Chouinard Art Institute, which later became California Institute of the Arts. And, and I there concentrated on drawing the human figure and learning it, and learning something about it, and getting a rough idea of what, what the bone structure is. I wasn't going to become a doctor, but I wanted to know why the hand worked, and how it worked, and what it would do. And, 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 but mainly, it was I wanted to learn how to draw, and to follow people that I admired, starting with, way back with, with the uh, cave painters in Altamira and Peshmer, there, you know, in France and Spain. So those guys drew beautifully. That was uh, Picasso adored them, and so did Michelangelo, uh, because they, they 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 learned to draw with a single line, as you do in animation. Although I didn't know at the time. So the, the most important study that you could have is to learn how to draw the human figure. Now I'm suggesting that if you're an alligator, learn how to draw alligators, but don't learn how to draw alligators if you're a man or a woman. Or uh, you know, they're important too. Um, you you learn how to draw it so that you can live with a single line, and you go clear back in history. Every one of them, including modern people like Andy Warhol, Klaus Oldenburg, Jackson Pollock, no matter what they do later, they did it after they learned how to draw. If you come to me with a good drawings of your of the human figure, say with simple lines, eight or ten of them then I will hire you on that basis. If you come to me with a bunch of drawings of Bugs Bunny, I say, look gang, go back and learn how to draw the human body because you can learn to draw anything. If you look at a book, which I'm, uh, I'm not selling my book, but you can borrow mine if you can get any money either way. You'll learn that, that the human figure, if you draw the human figure, you're going to learn how to do anything. I'll give you an example. Like I know I'm using up too much time. <laughs> but when, I, when we were doing the white seal, I wanted to help the animators to learn how to, to animate without saying seals are completely different. They're not. Seals have the same bones we do. Even a snake has hips. Really, there are little vestigial hips in there. But the bones are named the same. The humerus, the ulna, the universe, the junk. The names are not important. You can call them anything you like. You know, I give you permission. You can call them Fred and Tom and George and, and you know and so on. So I said, well, why are they different? I went down to the San Diego Zoo and and, and watched them. You know, looked at these guys laying out beside the pool. And they, I wanted to take and put a piece of colored cloth around their lines, stick a cigar in their face because they look like producers <laughs> at Palm Springs, right? <laughs> All I need is some beautiful chicks lying around. Really. But then, but I looked at when I looked down at the, the, their feet. These are my hands, in case you don't don't know which hand is which. Uh, so they, like when my thumbs are like this, and these hands, and, and they even have little fingernails. So those are feet. They're like ours, are feet, and they have a little tail in there. It's the end of their backbone. This much of their of their uh, bone structure sticks out of the fat, right? The, this bone is in here. It's inside, but they don't use it. So I got uh, my two grandsons 
They were about eight and ten at that time. They were wonderful swimmers. So I got them both and I put a rope around, tied their legs to their body, <laughs> and tied their knees together and tied their ankles together and put swim fins on their hands and on their feet and threw them into the pool. And I wanted to see whether they would drown or learn to swim. <laughs> I had a notebook, you know. <laughs> What's he doing with the ball in the pool? I, mean, I can't get anything from that. But within five minutes, they were swimming the only way they could swim. That's like a seal does. And when they wanted air, they had to come up and get it. When they went down, they were using their fins like this. They were, could turn by putting one one way and one the other. And, and uh, it was very simple. Then I took a look at the head of a seal. And I thought, no, wait a minute, that guy looks very much like a dachshund without ears. So I made a drawing of one with the ears pulled back. And sure enough, they were able to draw the whole thing without going through the terrible thing. And the New Yorker one time had that situation where the kid is standing right square in front of an elephant. And he says, yes, Mommy, I see the elephant. <laughs> I mean, well, how, how could he miss it? So it's the sameness. It's the sameness that gives you the ability to draw. The guys are drawing lions. Okay, they're drawing, they study the, they study the cat. If you can show the animator a skeleton of any animal, he can tell you how it has to move. And that goes for Bugs Bunny. This, any character. And Bugs Bunny has a kind of incipient thing. He can only do what he can do. We never let him extend the way they do with some of those characters like Ren and Stimpy, whoever they are. Uh, they may be funny, but they're not believable. Right? That's right. Like some girls can tell you there are a lot of men that way. <laughs> I want to thank you for being funny and believable today and giving us all your time. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.